Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we're talking all about episode six of Andor called The Eye. And this episode aired on October 12th, directed once again by Susanna White and the writer, once again, Dan Gilroy. We have closed out the second arc of this season of Andor, and I have never been more stressed in my entire life. <laughs> it's it's funny because I thought I could say the same thing about this, but if I'm being honest, remember how stressed I was in The Last Jedi when we were watching it? You were pretty stressed. <laughs> I was like forced to be ill because I was so stressed <laughs> about that. I, I was not forced to illness in this episode, but yeah. I I was very 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 stressed and on edge. The tension building was very effective. Yeah. <laughs> and even upon second and third watch, I f- still feel like this is a ride of just your heart is pounding so fast. I think even even thinking about um I guess I feel like the films are like another level. I feel like the most stress I would have been in a film viewing was probably Tross, but because we kind of knew what was happening, that made it a little bit easier, our first viewing of Tross. But thinking like about TV and everything, the only thing I can think that's even a little bit comparable was uh, was the episode... Ugh, the believer of the Mandalorian when he... Yeah. They're going to see his Similar. face. But this... I, I would... On a scale of 1 to 10, I would rate this episode a 10, and I would rate that episode of The Mandalorian comparatively now like a 7. <laughs> In terms of tension? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I think that it's, like, not even the same – in the same, like, no, family. No. I, I get it. I get what you're saying because I do think that it's a similar – the episode has a similar structure in a lot of ways, actually, but it's – this one is yeah. honestly – better and more effective i can't think of just, any other episode of star wars that has i've had this much anxiety watching <laughs> yeah yeah i know clone wars did that to me though too i don't know anyway this was so good i had so much anxiety i definitely needed to take a xanax after this <laughs> and i did <laughs> and i just felt like it was a masterclass in the buildup of tension we've now spent two episodes building up to this heist specifically and we've been waiting for this for so long and it really delivered i felt like i was on edge the entire time based off of the fact that i didn't know basically every single what every single character was going to do that was crazy and i thought the music was great i thought the visual effects were great i thought the editing was really good i think the twists were great the ending was great Outside of this episode, I feel like I haven't been this excited about Star Wars and felt like proud of Star Wars. I know that's a weird thing to say, but in a really long time, like years, I want to talk about this episode with everyone and I want to talk about Andor with everyone. It is so good. And I also want to say that the best, some of the best, I shouldn't say every single one, but some of the best Star Wars episodes and television are directed by women. And Susanna White... I hope she comes back next season because this was so good. <laughs> so good. 
I want more from Susanna White. I don't know if my heart could handle more from Susanna White because she is clearly such a master of tension <laughs> and tension building. But uh, I do actually want it because these episodes were incredible. And yeah, some of the, our all-time favorite Star Wars television has been directed by women. I mean, we look back at you know the past couple years of live action. Uh, Deborah Chow, of course, we have the entirety of Kenobi, which the other day I got to say I was just just ruminating on the fact that we got Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker. And I was like, wow. It feels like a fever dream. <laughs> it feels happens. like a fever dream. Like, it, wow. And, wow. And Attack of the Clones <laughs> era, too. It's just incredible. Anyway, Deborah Chow did that entire series, which was astonishing. Of course, her episodes in The Mandalorian, uh, The Sin, was just, I remember watching that for the first time, like, holy crap. I need her to be doing so much more in Star Wars. Bryce Dallas Howard's episodes in both The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett have been incredible. Um, and then we have Steph Green, who was also directing on Book of Boba Fett, right? Am I remembering that correctly? And her episodes were great too. So yes, please let's bring in more women directing in Star Wars because they are killing it. Completely. Also, I think the writing in this series and or we've I've been talking about it just want to mention it again that it's just so astute and perfect like it's really good every line really makes me think and I'm pretty astounded how invested I get in literally every single character who has a speaking part it is actually crazy even thinking about the wife and son of that lieutenant guy how I was immediately invested in them. And I was surprised by that. And it's just sort of goes to show like it's crazy in this cast that is so big how interested I am in literally every facet of it. It's just so good. The show is so good. And I will am trying to speak intelligently about it. But the truth is like it's just really good. And it's so fun to talk about the, the visual effects, the eye, finally seeing the eye, like we made it and it was gorgeous and it was so good. I've seen some people say that they're making that image of the eye, the back, their background on their laptop and computer and desktop and things like that. And I think I'm going to follow suit. Genius idea. Yeah. I mean, seeing it for the first time, it was, it lived up to the hype, quite honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really did. I love the shot at the end. Um, you know, all things considered, everything that's happening with the Dalnies. But um, at the very end of the episode, when it, the eye is really in full force and we're back where the Dalnies are, they do this pan of all the people there watching it and completely awestruck. And yeah. um, that included the Imperial officers that were there too. And I don't know. I just, I liked that everyone there was awestruck by nature and everything that was happening around them and, and had mm -hmm. that kind of everything is so much bigger than me kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt when I was watching it. And especially seeing the Dalnies and um, like there were some characters who, you know, were crying watching it and everything. And it was just, it was absolutely beautiful. And yeah, the um, visual effects were stunning in this episode. And I'm sure it took a lot of time to get those visual effects to look as good as they look. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there was so much work that went into that. That moment that you mentioned is definitely one of my favorite moments in the entire episode. I think it is a sobering moment because mm -hmm. it's really, I think you said that how 
nature can be sort of unifying. And I think what is in that moment, everyone was looking at one thing. Everyone was united at this specific moment, despite the fact that there was so much tension even within that group right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I thought that that was just really great. And I think that it was just a really quiet moment too that I think comes from direction, to be honest, because you pause in this, in the midst of this, uh, insanely busy heist and you experience that and you're like, wow, I don't know. It, people can be brought together somehow, but right now it is so divisive. I don't know. It was just, it was really well done. You had said that the moment was sober and it made me think of the word somber. And I was going to bring this up later when we got to this topic in the episode, but since we're talking about this moment now, we kind of get clarification or I guess rather uh, confirmation that at least the chief of the Dalny people understands basic English in this episode. And we know that the empire has said that this is the last time that the Dalnys will be able to come here and view the eye from this sacred site. And so I wonder if the Dalnys also know what the empire has been planning this whole time and know that this could potentially be the last time they get to witness the eye in in this um, in this same way before they potentially have to put up a fight or or aren't able to, aren't able to put up a fight um, in the future. So yeah, I think there was. I think that the Donnie may have inclination that that's going to happen in the future, and that is kind of aiding to the emotional response even more so in the event. Mm-hmm. And if that's not true. It's still like beautiful to see how much those people who've been thinned out by numbers based off of the empire's own machinations still participate in these traditions despite like in the face of adversity. Okay. So let's talk about whether or not anything that we predicted or talked about went as we thought it would. So what did you think? (laughs) No, (laughs) I think uh, last night too. So I watched this in the morning yesterday. We're recording this on a Thursday night. And then I watched it Wednesday morning, of course. And then Wednesday night, I watched episode the the arc in in total uh, episodes four through six. And I think episode four is my or episode five is my favorite out of this arc because I just love the way it makes you think about all of these characters and their why. We talked about that a lot last week that that episode last week's episode was about the why and everyone has their own rebellion. And then to see major players kind of take a left turn, do a complete 180. And of course, the big one we're talking about here is Skeen. He had no brother. (laughs) I was so shocked. It didn't even shock me that much when he made the suggestion to Cassian about running away with the money. It, It did. It did. I was kind of shocked about that. But him saying he didn't have a brother, that's what really got me. I think I I think I fully felt what Cassian was feeling in that moment. But, mm-hmm. you know, upon second watching of this episode, I think what I really came away with was that this episode and this show, and I think this is, of course, part of its overall point, is that our loyalties and I think kind of our perception of these characters and the choices that they're making on the fly 
flip-flop from extremes of what we would call a good choice or a quote-unquote moral choice versus a bad or immoral choice. Kind of every scene, like who we're siding with, you know what I mean? Like even thinking about a character like Skeen, you know, in last week's episode, when I was rewatching it, I was, it really kind of made me sad. The scene where uh, Nemec is showing his manifesto to Cassian and Skeen is kind of making fun of him, but it's, you know, all in good heart. And Nemec tells Cassian, you know, Skeen pretends he's not listening, but I know it's really sinking in there and that he believes in the cause. And Skeen kind of has this playful look. And the first time I watched it, I believed Nemec, that Skeen yeah. really did care yeah. about what they were doing and everything, and especially, you know, totally falling for Skeen's story about his brother. But then, you know, before we find out the truth about Skeen, Skeen is the one who is insisting that they save Nemec at the end of the episode after he's been injured. Vel, the leader, is the one who is considering letting him die. And so in that moment where I think for me as the audience, I was like, yes, pro skiing. <laughs> um, let's follow Skeen's lead here. But then that switches immediately when we get to the end. And he's ready to take all of the money and, and run and leave them to have made all of this worthless and to potentially not even see if Skeen makes it or if Nemec makes it in the end. And I just think that the episode did a really good job in kind of these big and small ways of showing these choices being made um, in real time and how these characters, I guess I would say their morality fluctuates, but that's not even like a good way to describe it because I think it's them just acting um, human and uh, that you can't predict necessarily what everyone's going to do. And even like Val, you know, we kind of saw her as this good leader and for the team and everything. And then she's willing to let Nemec die. Uh, even though he is the one who brought them there and the one that saved them in the end. But then in the end, she's the one that's with Nemec in his dying breath and the one who is actually helping the doctor try to save him. And you can't exactly blame her for being like, I don't know if we should go to the doctor and jeopardize the mission either. Yeah, right? yeah, that, yeah, exactly. And But then we can't blame Skeen either for being like, no, we have to do this or um, maybe it's the better choice to run away with the money. But then, you know, I think the the crux of it is looking at a character like Cassian, who I, he he's actually listening to what Nemec has been saying these past couple episodes. And we agree with him. We're glad that he and Skeen decide to go for the doctor, that Cassian flies the ship to where the doctor is. But then he makes this really bold choice to kill Skeen in the end. And I was surprised then too <laughs> that that happened and it was a shocking moment because we've seen now a lot of moments of Cassian not hesitating and hesitating and ultimately not uh, killing someone and I think it's interesting how this is kind of shaping him into the type of revolutionary the type of rebel that he's going to be when we see him in Rogue One well, him killing Skeen at the end, I agree with what you said, by the way. Also, before I dive into what I'm say, about to say, Tony Gilroy often talks about how he cannot write black and white characters. Mm -hmm. He writes gray. And of course, the decisions and how our perceptions 
of these characters flip-flop constantly because that's how they are written, right? Like yeah. that's how they're conceptualized. They're not supposed to be one thing. They're supposed to be all things. Mm-hmm. So the thing about Cassian killing Skeen at the end is what's interesting about it is in that moment when he kills Skeen, it could go either two ways, right? It could be he's so disgusted by Skeen that he kills him. It could also be he understands Skeen's offer and wants to take the money for himself and like doesn't want to split it with someone else. It could it could have gone either way. What we instead see is Cassian getting his cut and make, getting the hell out of there, which I thought was intriguing move given what I had initially thought like two minutes earlier <laughs> <laughs> and how it was pretty clear by the end of it that, I mean, Vel is, it's Vel and Cinta at the end, right? Cinta's not well, even with them. Well, yeah, Cinta's not there. And Gorn, yeah. Gorn, Gorn and Cinta are still alive. Yeah, Gorn is is toast though. He's toast. Unless he left with Cinta. That's true. I just don't think that's happening. It could happen, but I doubt it. Because I think that he Gorn like resigned himself when he said that word, those words to the lieutenant about the commandant. The commandant. Yeah. You know, don't <laughs> don't listen to anything I say about any sort of ranking. I think we all know what I'm talking about. Right? <laughs> when I had the notes first written, I had him written as Colonel, but then I was rewatching it and heard them say commandant more clearly like okay let me backspace this (laughs) anyway Gorn being like I deserve way worse for being under you for eight years I mean I think that he's resigned himself to this is a suicide mission and he doesn't have much left he hates his life so I sort of yeah I don't think he has an exit plan I think Cinta had an exit plan Mm -hmm. and I think we'll see Cinta again which I'm so glad that the two canon lesbians are not dead like it's great the fact is is that the entire team has like fallen apart right so cassian cutting and run running isn't exactly like i think in an idealized maybe star warsian world we would think that this would um hearten up cassian to wake him up to the fact that there's like a a cause that is the rebellion we have no idea what that looks like though right (laughs) at this time period i i would have thought that by the end of this it would be his like awakening his call to action or something like that and you can argue that it is because of the fact that nemec gave him that manifesto at the very end right like you can say that cassian is about to be inspired based off of the manifesto and this like kindness of this one this dying man it's not necessarily a step backwards but like now he experienced this and i think in a different star wars story it would have made him be like yes what's next but instead he's like i'm out of here i'm getting my my pay my paycheck i'm leaving you guys are crumbling you know I think that it's a little bit more real. It's a little bit more gray. And there's a lot of different ways it's in go. F- this can go from here. Well, I think that Cassian perhaps was buying into all of it. And then hearing yeah. the truth from Skeen, that was kind of the glass shattering. I yeah. think. And when I was watching it the second time, what I found myself thinking about, because in episode five, when Skeen is telling his story. Cassian asks about the trees, like what kind of trees were in the orchard. And I don't know why I kind of thought that was a weird question. And I found myself wondering if Cassian had doubts. I don't have an answer to that or really a feeling one way or the other, but I thought it was kind of an interesting question that I hadn't really noticed from episode five. And now knowing that Skeen ultimately didn't have a brother, I think I tried to read it as Cassian giving Skeen a test, (laughs) but I'm not, I'm not really sure on that. It was just an observation. 
But their conversation at the end of episode six, what I found myself thinking about was Cassian's sister. And, you know, Skeen had this relationship to his brother, as far as Cassian knew, and his brother had been lost to the Empire. And I wondered if like Cassian had connected to that on a personal level because of his experience of losing his sister. And there are still pieces to that story. We don't know, but if he feels like he's lost a sibling and had empathized in a really big way with Skeen on that. And then to find out that that wasn't true, it's like, like you've manipulated my feelings and, and all of that, of course. And I was kind of thinking about that side of Cassian's story on this watch um, of episode six. But yeah, it's interesting to think about where Cassian is going to be going next after this, because uh, I heavily speculated that this would be kind of the turning point for him one way or the other, or it's some kind of foothold into the rebellion. And I still think it is, but I think it also makes sense that it's kind of like two steps forward, one step back. And -hmm. I think that's what we're seeing now because Cat, it's I I'm still trying to think about the fact that Cassian didn't try to talk Skeen out of his idea and instead decided to do away with him. And Vel doesn't even believe him. And all he says is, I think you'll have to think on that and leaves. He doesn't technically finish the job. Like, I, okay, I guess he technically finishes the job, but they don't take the money where it's supposed to go. Right. And he just leaves. So where is he going next? Is he going to Ferrix? I kind of think that's where he's headed and he's going to come back to a very different planet. Another thought is that Cassian this entire time has been an expendable member of this little squ- like heist squad, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what Luthen says to Vel. Vel's always like, well, that's the thing. Like you can kill him if you need to, right? So there's also like Cassian is probably looking out for his own skin when Skeen tells him this, this like dubious kind of scary offer about like, let's take the money and go. What happens if Cassian said no, would Skeen have pulled out the gun on Cassian as well? Like, yeah. could could the roles have been reversed? Cassian has to look out for himself. And so, and again, like, that's probably why he went that route. It was shocking. And I think a, a mark of a good heist <laughs> is a twist at the end. So, of course, we get this twist where you leave, they leave this, they leave the planet with the payload. They have... Cassian is alive, Vel is alive, not everyone is dead, right? I think that's a that's a win in itself given how Rogue One went. Okay. If we wanna if we wanna compare and contrast, which I think in a lot of ways, I've said this before, but I think that we're supposed to, like in our brain, make a couple of comparisons about the success of this one versus the success of Rogue One. The Rogue One success seems like uh it was a suicide mission, it was a sacrifice. But ultimately, the plans got in the right hands and Luke Skywalker is able to use those plans to blow up the Death Star eventually, right? We don't know how this specific, like, win, like, specifically the money will inform the rest of the rebellion. Maybe it builds Yavin 4's, like, experience. I don't really know. One thing I wanted to say also, if we're on the subject of Cassian, which I feel like we are right now, is in episode four, which is the beginning of this arc, we hear him say things to Luthen like, I haven't agreed to do anything but save my skin. It's better to leave. It's better to eat. It's better to sleep. Live on your own. You don't know me. Again, like what you said, we wanted this to this. We wanted this entire arc to be his sort of awakening to a larger rebellion. 
And I do think that happens, but subtly. But at the very end, like, agreed. Like, that, this is what he says. Like, I haven't agreed to do anything but save my skin. Mm-hmm. And he does. He's, he saves his own skin. He leaves with a manifesto. And that manifesto, I think, is important. I don't think it's necessarily like a MacGuffin by any chance, but I do think it's going to inspire. I feel like it's sort of a Chekhov's gun situation where it's like Cassian has to read that, wonder what he's going to get from that, you know, (laughs) or how I don't know what's going to come of that manifesto, but it feels like I've seen it speculated that maybe that's where the rebellions are built on hope line comes from that he says, maybe it's something else in Rogue One that we see. Maybe it's just his own catalyst to get involved in the rebellion or return back because he feels this uh, this debt to Nemec who believed in him and was such a kind spirit in this entire heist. Yeah. I'm so sad. I know, me too. And I, we we knew it too, Caitlin. Like, I held out it. hope. I held out so much hope for him. Uh, I know. And when the, when the payroll went back and crushed him, I was like, no, no. I mean, honestly, no. like I can't handle how they killed the communist character by a big load of money. It's actually crazy. I it's don't like it. it's it's very metaphorical. <laughs> it's just so sad. I I I don't know. I just his ideals were too bright for this world. Yeah. I'm so sad. But I wonder, you know, yes, I think Cassian will read the manifesto, but where else will the manifesto travel? Right, I, I think right. that is a big piece too, because I I feel like it could get distributed somehow, even just the not even like on the on the internet, the interweb. What do they call it? The hollow net. But even just the the actual physical one, because I think Nemec would like right, that. like he yeah. Know. If in the future Cassian goes to prison or something, like I think that I'm speculating based off of the trailers, if that is seized, who is reading the manifesto then? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that get spread around? How does that inspire people in the same way that manifestos have inspired many revolutions? Will Nemec get the credit that he deserves? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I hope so. I got to say, though, I love, I think it was in the data bank that they were talking about the the physical manifesto, the data pad, and how it's like covered in a piece of leather or something like that. And all I could think of was it's like a Kindle, a little Kindle cover. It is like a Kindle. <laughs> it totally is like a Kindle. Okay. Let's talk. If we're talking about physicality, we need to make a little bit of an, an amendment to our last episode where you totally thought it was like a list of names in the payroll. Okay. I didn't think it was a literal role of pay. <laughs> when I think payroll, I think. Who's like, on payroll? I thought it was names. Who's on the payroll? You convinced me of it last episode. And I agree. I just didn't think it was actually like straight up money. I didn't either. And honestly, when I first saw it in the episode, I still thought it was like data chips, like USB drives, big gold USB chips. Yeah. I mean, it could be anything. It's fake and in space. It could have been anything. But it was like eight, 80 million, something crazy. I don't know. <laughs> it's insane. I, the, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I definitely thought it for a while it was still the actual names and list. And I still think that would have been valuable. But yeah, we talked about it in the last episode that like, oh, it's so cool that they're like stealing names versus money. Well, turns out it was money. Yeah. So which this makes sense, though, honestly, (laughs) because when we think back to the conversation between Luthen and Mon Mothma, Mon Mothma is she's not tight on cash, but she doesn't have a good way to funnel it to Luthen anymore. And I think Luthen is hedging his bets in a way or that this uh, this is going to fund the rebellion. 
uh, for the foreseeable future. And I wonder if Mon Mothma, I can't remember. I don't think they talked about this particular job. So I imagine Mon Mothma has no idea that Luthen is stealing all of this money. I'm sure she is connecting the dots now, but I don't think... I don't think she did in episode four. So it makes sense that Luthen is stealing actual money and not just, you know, W-2s and I-9 forms. Because that's kind of what not I the, thought it not was. Not the I-9. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what I thought it was. <laughs> what, are, what are the Imperial deductions like? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I think that there's, there's definitely something there, but this was not the episode for that. So, I also wanted to note something that I thought was quite interesting when I was watching this yesterday with my dad. Actually, I was thinking about how often in the Star Wars fandom and like outside of fandom too, there's often talk about like why would you make a prequel when you know the character's going to die in it's like main movie, right? Like, and how hard it is to build tension for that. And I thought that this episode handled the tension of Cassian's like life or death. Interestingly, because obviously we're not concerned about Cassian dying because we know he dies in rogue one, but we are concerned with Cassian doing his duties that he was set out to do, meaning flying the ship and things like that. So I thought that the writer Dan Gilroy did a really good job of how, we really want Cassian to be able to pilot that ship. And the way that we built tension is by having one of those officers choke him. And like, you don't know if he's going to be able to do it in time. And like, that was the main tension for Cassian at that point. And it was really like really real. And I was very nervous that they were not going to be able to get out of there. And in that moment, I think a lot of things also, also with regards to building tension and like the concept of a surprise within a heist, I do think it is a surprise that once they get on the ship, yes, they have to go through the eye. And I think that is a huge source of tension, of course. And like, but there's also a feeling of when you get on the ship and when you're in your getaway car, like the ship is that you're on your way out versus like they're away from the Imperials like they're getting chased by TIE fighters but at the same time like they did it they are on the ship with the money they're going somewhere yeah if they can get out and I think that what's interesting is it played with my expectations because I was like they made it on the ship only one of them isn't coming right like only Terramin is isn't coming and I think that they you know sort of uh, made it very clear that everyone was sad that Terramin wasn't coming and was dead but I think that again you feel the safety of being on the ship and then right away immediately Nemec gets crushed by the the fact that they were so sort of sloppy by putting everything in that ship and they didn't necessarily have any sort of time to bolt that down or secure that at all they were just getting ready to get they were just prepared to be on that ship right like Mm -hmm. so I think that there's just all this really expert level tension building um stake building character work and plot work that was happening at every single second that just deserves a shout out because it seems like an impossible task to continue to build tension sometimes in in a life or death situation with a character in which you already know their fate yeah there were just so many instances of the tension kind of being one up to every single time from uh, them taking the commandant from the engineer, pulling the blaster on them to Sinta killing the engineer, which, by the way, I was like, oh, okay, Sinta, fair, okay, great, cool. 
you get it, girl. Cinta is a killer, and I loved her. I loved her too, and I she was great. She was great, and I really loved that we had some time to see her personality some because she's been pretty quiet in the past two episodes, and to see mm-hmm. her as so calm and level-headed this whole episode you're kind of wondering why she wasn't the leader but I think I think it's important for the leader to to have that kind of emotion and then to have Mm -hmm. the right hand in this case for Val it's Cinta and you know when they're on top of the dam and Cinta is telling Val you know you have to do this, you know, like basically pull yourself together uh, and telling her to make the call. Uh, She's kind of that reassuring hand that this is what we have to do and we're doing it. We're doing it. So do it. And I don't know. Mm -hmm. I really love that aspect of her personality and getting to see her um, do more things and totally take control of the room too down there. But then speaking of building the tension more, uh, once we're down in the payroll or in the garrison of, you know, getting the payroll on, of course, we have the music, all the shouting, they're moving stuff, you know, that, of course, is very tension filled. But then we have uh, the officer who's up in the watchtower come down and Gorn has to try and get the commandant to tell them that it's just like a special mission and everything that's happening there. And then there's the shootout and then Tamarin dies. And then we have the fighters from Alkenzie that are coming. And I don't think that was part of the plan. I think that's the one part of their plan that kind of mm-hmm. didn't get accounted for was uh, uh, communication still going back and forth with the Alkenzie garrison. And I don't mm-hmm. know, there's just so much great tension and, kind of like beating a dead horse saying that but this episode was was so good at just kind of continually one-upping there there was no breathing room I would say in it once they uh once really once they entered the garrison there was no breathing room um and I would say a little bit before that but a lot of that was just kind of that slow eye of the hurricane I would say of you know, the empire talking about this ceremony with the Dalnies, seeing them kind of walk up and uh, seeing our crew kind of fall in line as the empire, as officers from Alkenzie. Uh, all of that was kind of this very slow buildup. And then the entire rest of the episode was just completely nonstop until we get to the doctor. And then, yeah, it was a ride. Yeah. Was a ride. Yeah. And then we have, you know, a literal, uh, pretty big plot twist and a murder at the end. And, uh-huh. <laughs> I, and a doctor named Dr. Quadpa. You can't leave that out. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's like, in case you forgot, you're in Star Wars just for I a second. So, helpful. don't worry. I was so ready for Nemec <laughs> to become a oh shoot why can't I think of what they're called um from Book of Boba Fett our favorite little teen gang Ahmad Ahmad yeah I was so ready for him to become Ahmad I was was ready (laughs) I was surprised when he walked in and they put pulled the sheet over him I was like wait what we stopped we, I, we stopped. We, we got to the doctor. <laughs> we got to the doctor, and the doctor is Dr. Quadpaw. He's <laughs> like, <laughs> he can do no wrong. I also, again, with the writing, I felt for that doctor when he was like, I did everything I could. I really tried when Cassian pulled the gun on yeah. him. I was like, oh, Dr. Quadpaw. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Quadpaw doesn't just, know. He doesn't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I do, I'm really sad about Nemec, so it's going to take me some time to uh, be okay. 
get over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Because they really, it really was, you know, at the end of, you know, for comparing to Rogue One throughout this series, in Rogue One, the cards were kind of on the table uh, for the kind of back half. I think there was always, especially the first time you watch Rogue One, there's a lot of that hope about Cassian and Jin making it out. But everyone else, it they they die on the spot, right? <laughs> it's morbid, but that's what happens. They die on the spot. And even at a certain point with Cassian and Jin, I think once they get into the elevator from the transmission, I think we know, right, that it's kind of over and their slow walk to the beach and, and all of that. But with Nemec, there was so much hope, especially because we had that um, that Chekhov's gun of the medicine. You know, in the first episode of this arc, when Cassian has his arm, Sinta is like, sorry, we can't give you any medicine. We're saving it for something important. Oh, my God. I forgot uh, about that. Yeah. And that's what keeps Nemec alive enough to utilize uh, the navigational wow. tool. And so I was like, okay, great. That's what we saved the medicine for. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, that was only a means to an end. And I, it was just, it was good. And I hope that Nemec's, obviously Nemec's dreams live on because the rebellion ultimately succeeds. But I hope that Nemec's memory itself is something that can be carried in some form into the rebellion. And I think it will through the manifesto, if not solely through Cassian himself. But... Yeah. While I mentioned it, you and I were talking about this last night, but the navigational tool that Nemec uses, one, you know, talking about critical redundancy, why did no one else know how to work that thing? <laughs> I know. I, there was a couple of times where I'm like, you know, they should have split this up a little bit better. Yeah. Or like all, like the fact that Cassian was the only one who could learn, know how to pilot that. And I know that that was like part of why they really needed someone and needed him specifically, mm -hmm. but I think it really poked a lot of holes in the success of that mission. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. You kind of wonder what would have happened if he hadn't been there. Yeah. But it wouldn't have been successful. No, no. They really did need him. And I think that it was also interesting, just a note, sorry to interrupt you, but you get, it's really clear that they really didn't, did need four men. Like mm -hmm. it would have looked weird with three Yeah, <laughs> when they were outside there. It was like groups of four all outside. They really needed Cassian there. And I think that when you rewatch the arc, everyone's like, well, you did say that we need another man. Well, you you know, yeah. we were short a man. We always knew that we were short a man. I the first time I watched that, I kind of thought they were being a little sarcastic or just orderly. And I think that when you see the plan all together, it's like, no, Cassian was actually really needed. And it was really good that Luthen forced them, forced him on them. Yeah. And because they needed him. Yeah. One thing that I noticed in this episode, and I don't know anything about military and or marching but you know in last episode when they were practicing the drills and Cassian tells Skeen and Tamron that they should switch places because Skeen is left-handed or something like that um when they they it's like they don't actually do it in this episode because at one point when the four of them all turn to face in a straight line Skeen and Tamron's uh blasters like butt heads <laughs> they're like opposite each other Look for it next yeah. time. And, and, and they like, they clack together. And I don't know if that was intentional uh, or just the way. Nerves. That, yeah, exactly. It was just kind of funny. So look out for it next time you watch this episode. But 
to go back to the navigational tool, uh, that was part of Nemec's manifesto, part of his uh, speech to Cassian in episode five about how the uh, we become too reliant on imperial technology and it's made us forget the things that we used to be able to do on our own. And part of them taking out the comms, part of them using the navigational tool that they did is that it was all manual. So it wasn't, it didn't have to rely on, I guess what I would liken to the Imperial Wi-Fi and be, uh, what's the word, infiltrated, uh, intercepted, and Mm -hmm. uh, what's the word, blocked too. But they're using this manual one and we see that comparison between Nemec putting in the path for them on that tool versus the TIE fighters who all their stuff gets fritzed out and they're unable to navigate the eye successfully. But we were talking about how this reminds us a lot of the higher public. These aren't spoilers for the higher public if you're not reading it. Um, but the higher public takes place in the far, far past. Uh, what is the first phase one is how far is it before the prequel like 100 200 i wish i knew off the top of my head i knew you're gonna ask this i "I don't know (laughs) phase two of the higher public just kicked off and phase two is about i would say at least 300 years before the start of the phantom menace and this time period it's a lot about exploration and so physically mapping out hyperspace lanes and so there's a lot of discussion in the high republic about how people are transported around how they communicate with one another because that technology is still being developed and the galaxy has not been mapped yet and so that tool that nemic is using really reminded both of us about a lot of the things that are happening in the era of the high republic and just was a cool connection and a cool thing to think about and to be able to bring, I think that piece of the high Republic or just that kind of thinking about the fact that there was a time in the galaxy where things weren't just a couple of buttons in on the mm-hmm. dashboard of your cockpit that you had to do it manually. Um, I think was really cool. And I'm glad that we are seeing that uh, tactile practical technology in uh, in Andor. And I wonder if we'll have other instances where they use it for the rebellions gain. Totally. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Another thing that I wanted to comment on since we're talking about Nemec, I have a couple things. First thing is how devastating it was that Nemec's last line to Cassian was climb, which is very similar to, it's the same as the last line K2SO says to Cassian too in Rogue One. So I think that but in both these occasions, I would say that K2 was Cassian's like buddy, his pal, especially in that heist group. And then I would say the same thing actually about Nemec with Cassian in this is that Nemec always believed in Cassian, even when Cassian like wasn't fully reciprocating it to Nemec. So that was sad, like really sad. And then the second thing I wanted to mention is you know, Nemec has like a lot of zingers, a lot of really great lines that you just want to kind of ruminate on a little bit. He says something about ammunition and uh, guns that I did not write down, but it really did remind me of that famous Karl Marx quote about Karl Marx being like pro-guns. The quote is, under no pretext should arms and ammunition be surrendered. Any attempt to disarm the workers must must be frustrated by force if necessary. And honestly, Nemec is saying the literal same thing that we use the weapons. We have to use the weapons. Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought that was interesting. I think that there is no doubt in my mind that that's the allegory here that is being drawn between these two characters. And it's 
pretty cool to have a character like this in Star Wars. I think that the closest thing that we have to like a true revolutionary uh, that we've seen so far in a big way is Sagarera. So I think that to see this side of someone who is a writer, who is compassionate and things like that is really cool and really am going to miss Nemec being around. And I hope that his spirit remains through the manifesto. Wow. It's making me really lament the fact that we don't get a Nemec and Sagarera scene <sighs> just to see what their conversation would be like. Well, they might have already met first off. That's true. That's true. So I wonder if Saul would even reference. We're going to see Saul eventually. I wonder if Saul would reference Nemec. I mean, this group was the group that mentioned Sagarera. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a contact that they contact that they have. Something that's going to come up in the future. I think. Yeah. I don't know. So that's good. A good point. I hope so. Also, I guess like in this same vein, we should probably talk about another person who died in this group, Terramen. I thought it was really cool that his background was that he was another stormtrooper, and he was a stormtrooper who decided to change his path. Of course, we immediately all think of Finn, right? And I really like this because there's a comment from Skeen about how when Cinta found that out, she wanted to kill him, but obviously that didn't happen and they learned to accept each other. And I think, again, this is just one of those things that is just so perfectly Star Wars that illustrates the thing that we always say on this podcast about how Star Wars is really all about how like any moment you can change your path. Like you can change your path. You'll have some consequences. The consequences might be that the person that you're you're next to wants to kill you, but <laughs> they'll figure it out and you guys can work together. And I was really sad that he died. Um yeah. I did think that they they uh like it was clear that Vel was upset about that too in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a good decision to show that um upset and also Nemec being like, What about Terraman? It was sad. So yeah. I, I liked that now we have we know every single person's by the way, every single person's background. No, basically like a nugget of their background. Except for Vel. Except for Vel, which if you remember in the last episode, I was like, maybe she's Luthan's daughter. Who knows? <laughs> the fact that we don't know his his her the fact that we don't know her background is really interesting. And we saw a lot of her vulnerability in this episode. We already talked about it that I really appreciated. But I would say that when I rewatched the arc, I was like, honestly, Luthen is talking to Vel like it's his daughter. It's like a father, fatherly nature to it, especially when he screams at her and says, listen to me. It's like very much a father-child situation um, of like, you're not going to be able to do this. So I'm providing, I'm paying someone to help you. Um, but again, I'm fine <laughs> if... If that's not the case, I just am putting it out there that I think it's weird that we don't know her background. I just think it's interesting. Yeah, I'm not entirely sold on Luthen being her father. I think it, it's Star Wars. Anything is possible. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'm here for it if that's the case. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to say about Cinta and Terramin is that uh, I immediately thought of Kanan and Rex from Rebels and that relationship. And I think that was probably similar to uh Cinta and Terramen and I think we know that Mm -hmm. stormtroopers and ex-stormtroopers have have a reputation in the galaxy as in people are very wary of them and Mm -hmm. don't like them and you know have a lot of feelings and trauma associated with stormtroopers understandably but anyway I thought of Kanan and uh Rex and how they eventually became true teammates Okay, kind of the last thing we haven't really touched on as we're kind of 
winding down this episode is the empire. You know, a lot of our other episodes in this arc have flip-flopped a lot between basically Aldani and Cassian and the empire, and then uh, Coruscant, Mon Mothma, and Luthen. And then we've had some flashes back to Ferex and Cyril and his mother, the crunchies, <laughs> the cereal that Cyril <laughs> eats. But this episode was really until the end is just on Aldani. And a big part of that, especially in the beginning, is the Empire and the Commandant and his family. And one thing I like about uh, Andor so far, the show, whenever we kind of see the Empire, is that everyone is talking about their assignments and where they want to be, where they don't want to be, and how everyone is kind of ordered around to fill a space. And that's kind of what we see the Commandant. Uh, what is his name? Oh, oh, I should have written down his name. It's like J. It's J. Something. J. Hold. J. Hold. Yeah. J. Hold. Which okay. <laughs> J. Hold. Uh, and his wife and his son. I thought it was funny in the beginning when he's asking her to help him put on his belt or his cape or something. And she says, oh, I'm helping the kid. And he goes, he's 12. He can dress himself. But then requires his own wife's help to get dressed. Bye. <laughs> Just Literally, uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> Not it. <laughs> I, this whole, we've seen a little bit of how the Empire feels about the Donnies. And to hear even more of the history, I had kind of forgotten that the Empire had been there for quite some time, that it had been, I think, 12 years is what they said, at least a decade. And the Commandant telling the engineer exactly how they've kind of beaten the Aldanis down, the Dalnis down, and how they believe that they're stupid. I think the Commandant says something to the extent of they can only hold one thought in their mind at a time, which... And goes without saying, obviously, all of this is racist and disrespectful <laughs> from the Empire. I don't need to say that after everything the Empire says. But um, the way that they are, like, distracting, the, quote unquote, distracting them from the fact that they're losing everything and how they, you know, kindly offered these transports for the Dalinis to come back up to the Sacred Valley to view the eye. But that's not... Um, traditionally how the Donnies have approached the eye or come to this um, event. So they don't do it now. So they've set up like all these comfort stations and really made it like, oh yeah, we're clearing a path for you to come here and making it easy and, and everything like that. But it's, uh, you had written this in the notes, um, the concept of overwhelming their simplicity is evil. And it really reminded me of Nemec's quote from last week where he said, the pace of oppression outstrips our ability to understand it. And little by little, the empire, you know, completely dissuaded thousands of Dalnis from partaking in this event, from coming to see the eye, this sacred event for them every year. And, you know, making fun of the trading of the goat skins and everything like that. Again, talking about the smell and how bad everything smells there. I don't know. I just it really kind of hammers home uh, what the Empire does when they come onto a planet and that they're that it's the long game, too. I think a lot of times in Star Wars, we're very used to seeing the immediate effect of the Empire. So I think this show is doing a really good job of exploring how the Empire has been here for over a decade. They've built up this 
tension-filled relationship with the Dalinis. And it has this farce to it every three years for the time of the eye. And I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I think that the Commandant thinks it's just from the Empire side, obviously. But I think the Dalinis are... Um, of course, way smarter than the Empire gives them credit for and actually understand what's going on here. Um, because I thought it was really interesting that the Donnie chief actually tells Gorn the message of finding good in him, whereas he tells the commandant that their ghosts have strong hands and long memories, mm-hmm. which I thought was a great, mm-hmm. <laughs> a great quote. Yes. And the chief appears to understand Gorn when Gorn does not translate his message back to the commandant. And so that's why I kind of think that the chief actually knows everything that the empire has been saying this whole time and perhaps the rest of the Donnies as well. And then when they take the goat skin from the empire and burn it, uh, that didn't seem very sacred to me. It definitely felt like a, we're burning you. <laughs> and it, totally. And again, I thought of Vel's line of everyone has their own rebellion. And I think that this was part of the Donnies. Mm. Yeah, a small part, I think. Mm-hmm. I I feel like something that was interesting about the character Jay Hold is that he was clearly trying to impress his boss, right? And when he is talking to him about like, we set up all these different encampments and to make it easy on them and we've went we've gone from this number to like this extremely small number because of all these encampments and I did that and I'm so glad about that, right? It's really like he's trying to impress his boss based off how evil they can be, how much of a nuisance they can cause for the Dalnies. And I think what's interesting also is that everything is a nuisance for this guy. It is insane. Like he is getting dressed to go deliver that goat skin, just dealing with the, the, the locals there. He just can't even be bothered. It's like the most frustrating thing. All he can care about is having this big feast afterwards. Right. And I think that that entire thing, it was exchanging a couple words and giving something that was probably done for him. It's not like he skinned the goat to these people. It was a 10 minute long thing. And it was so unbelievably frustrating for him. It like ruined his whole day. And it was just, un- it's, it was ridiculous. Right. And I think that the dynamics there about like, oh, the wife doesn't want to be on the planet. Like you mentioned about the placement. I think that's so, such a good observation about how like everyone's so obsessed with their placement. The wife doesn't want to be there for probably a lot of different reasons, probably because of the planet itself, probably because she's in a relationship with this terrible guy, right? (laughs) And uh, I mean, like, that has to be part of it. I don't know. Um, But at the end of the day, like, he's just trying to – he's enjoying it because he's clearly enjoying himself and drinking his tea and watching the the festivities, right? But I also think that he – I don't know. I think that they're – they're building something about how like he's constantly just trying to impress his boss on how like rude he can be. It's has to like, he wants to top himself so that he can eventually get off. And the only key to getting off the planet is to be evil. That is crazy. It's just a lot. Well, I think it's not even about being evil. I think it's right. The, the optics of the empire on this planet that they can say, Oh no, like yes, we, we yeah, put our you're right. In I here. was just using shorthand. Yeah. Yes, correct. Yeah. It's not he wouldn't describe it as evil. He's like, I've made the empire look good. 
Right. I would describe it as evil. Well, yeah. He <laughs> is just doing the absolute least, but also the absolute most. Yeah. And you're right. It is to make the empire look good in a lot of different ways, but you could argue them both ways, I guess. And that's kind of his whole point. Just, yeah, you're right about that Nemec quote about the pace of repression outstrips our ability to understand it. Yeah. It's, it's a great one. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, Nemec. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then, I mean, he, he's gone too. He's part of our, our body count at the end of this episode. Yeah, heart attack. Yeah. I loved him realizing that it was Gorn. They did. They really, yeah. the, I would say the only time we actually paused in the back half of this episode was when the commandant hears Gorn's voice from behind him. And he has like, he just goes completely pale as he realizes mm-hmm. what this means. Great moment. And of course, Gorn, mm-hmm. like you had mentioned earlier, Charlotte, uh, you know, the, what does the commandant say? You'll hang for this. And he says, working for you for seven years, I deserve worse. Way, yeah, way worse. Yeah. It's so good. Oof. <sighs> yeah, really, really great. So, of course, we go back to Coruscant. You think the episode's over. It's not over. And we see Mon Mothma giving a speech in defense of the Gormans who are having their rights stripped from them. In Rebels, we hear about the Gorman massacre. And so eventually, like, this, she's fighting for this, but it doesn't work out. It's sort of like a little bit of a Rebels Easter egg there. But no one's listening. And everyone is looking at their data pad. And clearly, the, I think the point of this really is that this attack on Aldani has made a splash. And whether or not people died, like it does matter. And I think it will matter to Luthen. But right now, it's all people are talking about. We go to Luthen's shop. I love that that framing of that one guy. I assume whoever, he's like the husband of whoever is shopping, reading the news and being like, got anything from Aldani? And he's frozen, mm-hmm. but trying to keep it together. It really worked for me. I think that was a really good acting moment. Of course, it's just because everyone's talking about this this attack, this situation. And I really, really liked that quiet moment in the end of relief from Luthen. He doesn't know anything about the status of the mission. He doesn't hasn't been in contact with anyone. But there was a level of success because people are talking about it now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the other good thing to bring up from this little epilogue at the end is we get a shot of everyone going to the conference room in the right in the Empire <laughs> I, I, ISB. ISB. That's what I thought. I wasn't sure if that was true. Um, also, mm-hmm. that box, it is called a star path. It's oh a Star God. Path box. I know. It is giving Star Trek, but it's it's like a it S9, I9 Star Path unit, something like that with cool. vectors. <laughs> Great. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, one thing I wish I had written down, I meant to go back and grab it directly from the subtitles, but the head guy, um, Dedra's supervisor man, he tells all of them to get comfortable, right? You know, call your staff, call your family as you're going to be here. But he asks them to start pulling all of the planetary retaliation plans. And that word retaliation, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it the word retaliation is definitely in it. It's basically like the planetary retaliation plans. He asks them to pull something like that. So I think that's going to be something to watch as we move forward through the rest of the series. What exactly is a planetary retaliation plan? Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too. I mean, I think that it sets up a lot of conflict for um, 
not necessarily conflict, but I guess I guess rising action for Dedra about how she already has been working really hard with that intern guy that we talked about last episode mm-hmm. about like pulling a lot of different uprisings, ca- trying to string them together. And I think this is probably where she's going to shine or get some attention based off of that. She's got to study the ladder before she climbs it. <laughs> I love that line so much. Don't look down. Oh, so good at being. There's so much good writing. (laughs) Everything is good. (laughs) The show, and you know, the thing is, is Caitlin, you were always like, Andor's going to surprise us. It's really going to take us by storm. I believed it, but like, nothing leaked about this show until like May. Right? Mm -hmm. We didn't see anything from until Celebration, and it just continues to blow me away how good this show is. I do think it's the best show on TV now, and Mm -hmm. I can't wait for more. I can't believe we're halfway through, first off. We're halfway through. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, I'm glad that this isn't like a six-episode, eight-episode thing, that we have a full 12 episodes, so we have two more arcs. Mm -hmm. Excited about that, but my My question is, okay, this this first half has been about a week worth of time, I would say, give or take. We know that everything on Aldani was three days because three days. Yeah. Uh so give or take a week all in. Um and we know that the first season covers a year. So mm. potentially we could have a pretty big time jump next week too. I wonder if we'll have an internal time jump. Like will the episode start with like six months later or could it happen within the episode? Oh yeah, that's true. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So. I would like for the next episode to open getting answers to what Cassian does next immediately. Yeah, I think a mid-episode, mid-arc time jump would be a fun way to play with that time jump. Because I think we would expect yes. it at the very beginning or end, like an epilogue. Yeah. yeah. Of course, I can go either way. But yeah, that's that was sort of my thought yeah. is that I wouldn't be surprised if it was like mid. I think we all think that it could potentially be like in the start of one of these arcs, but why not have it happen in the middle? You never know. Yeah, why not? Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else we want to say about episode six, The Eye? No, best ever. Worth the wait. Best ever. Best ever. Can't wait to watch again with a Xanax <laughs> or like a glass of wine. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. The wine definitely helps. But once you get yeah. to the last 15 minutes, nothing helps you. So, Well, you tweeted this yesterday about how you, you're you so glad that you never have to watch that episode for the first time yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching it again with my dad who was watching it for the first time. and He loved it. My dad is also like, by the way, if we're there's been times on this show that I've talked about my parents and my parent meter about how much they like the show versus how much they don't. My dad is pretty convinced this is the best show on TV too. And he's not a huge Star Wars fan. I feel like it's it's high praise. Okay. It's high praise. It is. And I think that I was so tense last night watching it with him. I was like, this is exactly the same way I felt when I watched it yeah, for the first time. Yeah, but you're also like absorbing his energy. Too. Yes. So. Exactly. So when I watched it for the third time tonight, it wasn't that bad, yeah. but I was still tense. Yeah, I definitely tweeted yesterday. I said, thank God I never have to watch this episode for the first time again because <laughs> I can't handle it. <laughs> yep. And I do mean that. But if you haven't watched the, all three episodes together, definitely go back yes. and do that because it the roller coaster is even more extreme in a really good way. And it fits together really nicely. So definitely recommend. Well, now we have like two separate like movies almost like feature length movies that are clear arcs so cool yeah it really is it really is 
All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it and are loving Andor as much as we are. Can't, you know, who literally who knows what's coming for us next week. We've had basically a teaser for the whole first half of Andor, you know. So who's to say what's coming next <laughs> but if you want to talk to us about andor or anything else star wars uh, you can find us online on twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles mine is at caitlin flusher charlotte's is at clarity we also have our website skytalkers.com our tiktok our instagram our facebook all of those are good places to find us. And if you've recently left us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, thank you so, so much. And if you have a couple of seconds to spare and would like to leave us a written review, we would so appreciate it. It helps other people find our show. And if you're interested in other ways to support our show, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. We are actually, Charlotte and I are going after we finish this recording we're going to go and record a bonus episode for patreon all about uh this episode and the concept of a heist charlotte and i had an episode called is solo a heist film a couple years ago where we broke down all the components of what makes a heist movie a heist movie and we really love that episode and we're going to apply that methodology to this episode of andor so you can find that on patreon if you are interested in listening yes very excited to go down that list and talk about it so i want to say a huge thank you to these patrons paul hari krishna danny megan becky z james nick Christina, Rachel, Jessica, Emma, Kara, Allie, Olivia, Justin, and Benjamin. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.